It is a violation of human rights when young girls are brutalized by the painful and degrading practice of genital mutilation. It is a violation of human rights when women are denied the right to plan their own families, and that includes being forced to have abortions or being sterilized against their will. If there is one message that echoes forth from this conference, let it be that human rights are women's rights and women's rights are human rights once and for all. Welcome to 10 Minutes on Democracy. That moment of democracy inspiration was from the historic speech on women's rights given by First Lady Hillary Clinton on September 5th, 1995 at the United Nations Fourth World Conference on Women in Beijing. I'm Jason Franklin, Senior Advisor at One for Democracy. It's Tuesday, June 29th, and moving from 1995 to today, I'm reflecting on five key issues this week. The first filibuster of the For the People Act happened on Tuesday. We've got initial bipartisan agreement on the infrastructure bill. Some new insights about America's evolving relationship with socialism, also the impending eviction crisis, and some new developments around accountability and debate over the Trump legacy. So first, the For the People Act. Uh, Just hours after I recorded last week's 10 Minute on Democracy podcast, the For the People Act met its first test in the Senate. The vote was not actually on the passage of the bill itself, but whether to simply open debate. All 50 Democrats, including Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema, voted to do so, and no surprise, all 50 Republicans voted to filibuster. Most mainstream media reported this as a major loss for Democrats. Many said the bill was now dead, I'd consider all of that to be lazy and bad reporting, to be honest. This filibuster was expected, but the actual vote was a small but crucial victory for Democrats because Manchin, and to a lesser extent Cinema, voted yes. Just two weeks ago, Manchin wrote an op-ed saying he'd vote no, but then he offered a compromise outline which has largely been moving forward. The real question for the For the People Act and whether it will be able to pass or not comes in the next vote. This is part of the political theater of passing a major piece of legislation. The question truly facing Democrats is can they reform the filibuster? Both Manchin and Cinema have said for months they won't eliminate the filibuster, and they both continue to emphasize how much they want bipartisan support. But Manchin has explicitly said that he's open to reforms to make filibustering harder, and Cinema has refused to speculate on what she'll do. So Democrats are considering a couple of options. I want to take a moment to talk about them. First, They may create a narrow exemption for the filibuster rule to be suspended for any legislation dealing with voting and elections, just like was done around judicial and executive appointments. If that were to happen, for the People Act passes, and so does the John Lewis Voting Rights Act. The other two options would either require that 41 senators of the minority party be present if they want to continue to block a vote, The third option would be to require opposing lawmakers to speak on the floor continuously to block any new piece of legislation from advancing. But there's a variation on that last one that would be a talking filibuster with a gradual reduction in the number of senators who can prevent a vote, starting with the same 60, but declining over time down to a simple majority over a few weeks. Now, neither of these last two options would guarantee passage of the For the People Act because Republicans still have enough votes 
to sustain the filibuster if they remain united. But it makes it harder to block legislation because they have to proactively block it, not just procedurally block it, and they have to come out much more explicitly against an otherwise popular piece of legislation. So these votes are going to come in the next few weeks, after the Senate reconvenes from its July 4th recess, because the anti-gerrymandering provisions of the For the People Act need to pass the Senate before the August recess to be in place before redistricting begins in September. So much more to come on this in the next few weeks. Second, um, from Tuesday to Thursday, Biden announced agreement in principle on a $1.2 trillion bipartisan infrastructure package. The deal would allocate that $1.2 trillion over eight years, roughly $580 billion in new spending, and it included 21 senators, 11 Republicans, and 10 Democrats who publicly signed on to the deal. It has major money for roads and bridges, rail, public transit, the power grid, expanding broadband, water access. But his announcement came with one caveat, which proved to be very controversial. Biden said he wouldn't sign the bill unless a separate budget reconciliation deal the Democrats could pass without any Republican votes was also moved forward, and that would contain key things around climate and family care in particular. Republicans blew up in the last few days after that caveat, ultimately leading Biden to walk back his comments, saying he'd not intended to threaten a veto if the bills weren't paired. And now Schumer and Pelosi are trying to navigate how to pass the bill and move forward a Democrat-only reconciliation bill without losing more than one of the 11 Republicans who signed on, since they're critical to get past a filibuster, but also not losing progressive Democrats who won't vote yes at all without a process to get those other climate and family care priorities passed. So a real dance could all fall apart still, and Democrats still have the advantage on this front because they could pass almost all of this bill through a reconciliation if a bipartisan opportunity is not provided. Stepping back from kind of the issues of the moment to a little bit broader, Axios reporter Felix Salmon wrote a few days ago, politicians looking to attack opponents to their left can no longer use socialist as an all-purpose pejorative. Increasingly, it's worn as a badge of pride. Now, this reflection was spurred by a new poll that they had out that found that less than half of younger Americans held a positive view of capitalism. And socialism's appeal is on the rise in the U.S., especially driven by Black Americans and by women. Interestingly, just before that poll came out, self-identified Democratic Socialist India Walton delivered a surprising upset in her Democratic primary bid for mayor in Buffalo, New York's second largest state against the incumbent mayor. In this heavily Democratic city, unless Byron Brown, the incumbent, can successfully run a write-in campaign in the general election as he's threatening to do, Walton would become the first Democratic Socialist mayor of a major city since 1960. Now that kind of evolving relationship to socialism also kind of sits in contrast with or connected to the other issue I'm looking at right now, evictions. We all know that the heightened wealth inequality that was just spurred and exacerbated by COVID is top of mind for so many. The CDC issued what is likely to be its last extension of the eviction moratorium last week, and public officials are racing to stave off roughly 3 million expected foreclosures and evictions in the next two months as a result. Estimates are that more than half of the billions of dollars in rental and mortgage assistant payments may still have not actually reached consumers or landlords as they're caught in the really complicated and overwhelming, overwhelmed state bureaucracies. 
And frankly, there's also the looming problem of private lenders failing to appropriately modify loans, whether intentional profiteering, negligence, or error. So what to do with 3 million potential foreclosures and evictions and how that will ripple out in our politics and our understanding of the fairness of the economy is something we're going to keep our eye on. And then last but not least, ongoing debate around the Trump legacy. You know, we know that we're going to be handling and dealing with this for decades, and we'll likely see at least years of battle over more direct accountability. In the last week, we saw a couple of things happen. The New York Supreme Court suspended Rudy Giuliani's license to practice law in the state after concluding that he had, quote, communicated demonstrably false statements in court regarding the 2020 election. And this now sets the stage for his possible disbarment. Additionally, the next controversy out of many to come, flowing from all of the books that are coming out about Trump and key elect administration leaders landed when former Attorney General William Barr called Trump's claims about fraud in last year's election, quote, bullshit, and provided details on how McConnell pressed him to publicly dispute Trump's assertions. Whether these revelations and individual moments of accountability shift any broader public opinion remains to be seen, and frankly, I have my doubts about their impact, but personal accountability still matters. Now, more significant for politics broadly, the Manhattan District Attorney's Office and the New York State Attorney General's Office met with lawyers from the Trump Organization to discuss the fallout of a potential criminal indictment. These are called collateral consequences, and I've learned that these meetings are very routine in white-collar investigations, and they often indicate that charges are near. So a criminal indictment could jeopardize Trump's ability to get new loans for his very highly leveraged hotels, could jeopardize their liquor licenses, which are key to their profitability. But on the political side, it could also create space for moderate Republicans who want to begin moving past the president by arguing that they need to forge a new path while he deals with legal troubles. Another test along with that surprise North Carolina primary I talked about of whether Trump can retain his hold on the Republican Party. Uh, finally, after Senate, Republicans blocked the formation of an independent bipartisan commission to probe the January 6th insurrection. Speaker Pelosi released new legislation uh, to create a select committee to investigate the attack. It would have 13 members, likely seven or eight Democrats, so majority, and it will have the power to subpoena. The select committee would have no deadline on its work, unlike the commission, which would have had to be finished by the end of the year. So it's stroking both fears and hopes, depending on your politics, that this will sustain the investigation of the insurrection into the midterm elections next year and keep it top of mind for voters. So some interesting things to watch in a quieter week overall. But thanks for joining me uh, to hear a quick review of these issues from the latest on the voting rights and infrastructure bills in Congress to evictions and Trump accountability. I'm Jason Franklin. It's Tuesday, June 29th. And thanks for joining 10 Minutes on Democracy.